This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Dragon Con. Writerly Discipline. Gumshoe Panel Excerpts. And the Rosicrucians. This week's episode is brought to you by the Spark role-playing game by Genesis of Legend Publishing. Challenge your beliefs. Find out what you can create when those beliefs are tested. Discover who your character really is. Eronin protects her love against an alien assault. A police officer struggles to calm ethnic tensions and prejudice. A healer is forced to choose who may be saved. Create a compelling and unique setting from scratch with your friends. That's the Spark role-playing game from Jason Petrie and Genesis of Legend Publishing. And now, Ken, it's yet another travel advisory as part of your epic marathon of gamery. You really did convention season all out this year. So, like me, you did Gen Con and Fan Expo, and unlike me, who had a weekend of determined nothing doing in order to prep myself for the rigors of the Toronto International Film Festival ahead, you went to Dragon Con. So uh, what did you see at Dragon Con? And for those who have never been to Dragon Con, what might they have expected to see had they been there? Well, I have not been to Dragon Con since the late 90s, maybe since 99 or so. The show at that time was sort of a cross-media science fiction comics show with a little bit of gaming on the side, which is why we stopped going uh, from Last Unicorn Games, because the gaming component wasn't really large. Uh, well, in the intervening decade plus, the whole convention has gotten larger, including the gaming component, and it has apparently gotten so large they split tabletop gaming off from computer gaming, and it still grew, and so they invited me out. And now what it is is a convention roughly the size of Gen Con. It had like 52,000 people last year. Um, they were predicting over that this year something, you know, heading towards 57 or 58,000. The difference between Gen Con and Dragon Con, of course, is that Dragon Con is still a, uh, what they call a media show or a, or, or a show involving lots of different facets of fandom as opposed to being centered on gaming the way that Gen Con is. So all 57,000 of those people are out wandering around the streets of Atlanta and trying to get from place to place in the hotels as opposed to being ensconced uh, neatly in game rooms the way that they are at Gen Con. So it is about the same size as Gen Con, but it feels much larger because you are always uh, swimming against a giant sea of gaily caparisoned fandom. Do you have any sort of estimate on what, like, what were the uh, seminar attendances like compared to, say, Fan Expo or Gen Con? The seminar attendances were higher than... Both Fan Expo and Gen Con, with the exception of the one seminar that uh, we did, you and me, and um, and I guess Ed with the uh, the sort of um, generalized GMing tips panel that was very big at Fan Expo. That was about the size that the seminars were in the gaming track in Dragon Con. The seminar that I did solo, which was uh, Cthulhu in Gaming, had about 85 people at it, for example, which is pretty darn good, even for Dragon Con. The Dragon Con organizers, uh, they had a, the guy from the gaming track was there sort of moderating all of the seminars, uh, that I was on. And he, well, all the ones that I was on in gaming. And he said that that was, uh, better than they had expected. And so 
and also pretty good for, for Dragon Con. It, the rooms are, were usually either close to full or totally full if they'd underestimated. Both the Cthulhu panels that I was on in the horror track had probably standing room only by the time, uh, they actually got started. There was people jammed up all the way into the back. It was sort of a long, weird looking room in the Westin, but it was over, well over a hundred people in that room for sure. Uh, some might say a non-Euclidean room. It, it possibly was a non-Euclidean room. And, uh, that was, um, that was on the horror track. I should, I should mention I was sort of seconded to the horror track because at a show like that with, you know, a horror track and a gaming track and an X track and a paranormal track and a comics track, there's a lot of tracks that I could, uh, opine on, but they had me on gaming and horror this time. But I think that paranormal guys, um, or the X track guys were sort of sniffing around some of my, uh, session. So I think that maybe if, uh, next time, uh, I think there was the, the panel on Nazi cults and other weirdness that may have gotten their attention. And so. As, as such a panel would. Yes. As it should, certainly. And so if, if I come back next time, I'll probably be spread across more tracks. And the people like, uh, Sheree Priest or Jonathan Mayberry were, uh, on panels across five and six and seven different tracks. So that's sort of how the guest uh, sharing out experience works, I guess, is that you're right. Cause just as any fan is going to be multi-track, almost any pro that they bring in is also going to be able to opine on various of these interrelated strands right. of nerddom. And so we're looking at a situation like we we're talking about uh, with fan expo, where the rising tide of nerddom is certainly floating the gaming boat. And as you have more and more people who want to come out to seminars, I guess the, Almost kind of the, the, the threat is that uh, those of us who go to conventions will find ourselves uh, wanting not to turn things down because it's such a period of excitement and there's a, a big audience of people to talk to. But then, you know, there's only so many uh, weekends in the year that you can devote to that. And it always does. Uh, and this maybe is encroaching on a, a later segment, but there's always a productivity hit in preparing to go to a convention and then returning from a convention. And you're, you know, at the very least, you're working a weekend and having your brain uh, going in overdrive when normally you would be relaxing it. And often you uh, lose a day on either end to prep. So uh, it's going to be interesting going forward to see what conventions can do to entice people now that there's more and more demand for them to show up and do the panel thing. Because after a certain point, you want to be able to engage in promotion and, and outreach and, and talk to the people who are interested in what you're doing. But then on the other hand, there's a point at which the promotional value of, of doing that, if you're doing it a whole bunch of times every year, starts to be uh, kind of overwhelmed by the work that you should actually be doing and getting paid for. Yeah, there's there's certainly there's a sweet spot. And I think every you know given creative has that at their point. I think with something like the gaming track at DragonCon, which is relatively new and is growing by leaps and bounds, it probably makes more sense for a professional to show up to that and sort of seed the alpha alpha nerds early rather than uh, skip it. For a more established show, it might make more sense to, um, you know, like, say, Worldcon, it might make more sense to not put that into your schedule unless you really have other urgent business at Worldcon or it's in your hometown like it was for me last year. Right. Cause you, these are sort of people who are, if not new to gaming, new to going to seminars and so forth. And that if you're the first cool person that they see, talk about gaming, you're going to have more of an impact on them than if you're the 112th cool person that they get to see. Right. It's, um, 
you know, and, and like with all these shows, there's a there's a broad mix, just like there was at Fan Expo, of sort of old hands who you could recognize by their thousand yard stare and their um uh, <laughs> and their questions about uh, something that happened in Dragonlance, and then then the new people who are just there, you know, you know, high school students or maybe even junior high students who are there at their first convention, much less their first uh, Dragon Con, and just sort of drinking it all in with that, you know, crazy uh, adolescent, um, you know, uh, sponge brain that they have, and just really sort of, you know, charging up on, on the whole experience. So, uh, speaking of the paneling experience, were there particular uh, panel highlights or mixtures of people that you found exciting beyond the usual topics on which you discourse? Well, I did. Um, I always enjoy uh, seeing Bill Bridges, and he was one of the masters of horror in gaming that we did on Saturday. It was Clint Black of Deadlands fame, uh, Bill Bridges, myself, and C.A. Suleiman, the guy who did Mummy, uh, the new Mummy book for White Wolf or Onyx Path or whatever, whatever it was. He did the new Mummy book for it, and that was um, uh, that was great fun uh, to get sort of Bill's perspective as well. On, I mean, not that uh, CA and, and Clint and I didn't have a couple of things to say, but Bill is always great. And because he, his take on horror is, is such a more humanistic take than I think mine is or a lot of other people's, it's, it's always really interesting to hear Bill talk about how to, how to, use, how to turn that genre into games. Uh, the 21st Century Cthulhu panel that we did uh, that had m- myself, Jonathan Mayberry, Cherie Priest, James R. Tuck, and Brian Callahan, the uh, guy who runs the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, uh, was on that panel as well. So it was a, it was a real sort of a, a you know, everyone on your toes and uh, heavy hitter type uh, panel that had a lot of good stuff going on. The other Cthulhu panel had uh, myself and Brian and then Michelle Bellinger, who's a occult scholar, and Steven Siegel, who is the former nonfiction editor of Weird Tales and the reason that I have a column in Weird Tales to this day. And so those were both, I thought, uh, possibly because I don't do as many of those type panels as I do gaming panels. Those were very interesting to me. Although doing um, the sort of car talk, fix your campaign bit with uh, Skip Williams, that was that was an experience and a half because we were urged to make it more informal, which... Uh, was was pretty great as opposed to the acute formality of most uh, jamming uh, troubleshooting panels. Yes, this one this one was uh, <laughs> this one involved more byplay, I guess, and it, it was it was great fun. I mean, I haven't really hung out a lot with Skip, and so it was sort of great to sort of be on a panel with him. And of course, as he pointed out, he did exactly that for a decade or whatever it was in the pages of Dragon Magazine as the Sage. So that was pretty great. Right. Although I guess as the Sage, he was getting very fine grained questions about you know how fireball worked mm-hmm. yeah there was you know there was a lot more of that i think in dragon than there was in this this was much more the what do i do about that guy and how do i fix this situation i've gotten myself into somehow type questions which were which were pretty great although the guy who asked who asked a question about it, he had one player who was the tactical smart intelligent science officer type player and four combat monsters and he wanted to know how to balance his encounters and i asked him what game he was playing, and he sort of didn't want to say. And I said, "Well, is it fantasy or is it mo- what's what's the game?" And he's like, "All right, it's sort of um, post-apocalyptic modern Pokemon adventures." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when he says it out loud, oh, wh- why didn't he want it to say? I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand either. It it um uh, it seemed like a perfectly legitimate genre. And of course, I give him the advice to you know. Basically, I ripped off preparedness and said, "Have the have the um, 
the smart character use their smarts in combat like Batman does. You know, the, their secret power is that the author is on their side. So they can use that. They can have already pre-planted Pokemon explosives or whatever. <laughs> Fire elemental Pokemons uh, at, a, at a given place or summon them into a location. And so he, he you, liked you laugh now, but millions of people around the world are threatened by Pokemon explosives every year. That's true. Yes, I couldn't, I couldn't make light of uh, pocket explosions. That, that makes me, you know, really want to consider a Pokemon Gamma World uh, mashup. Well, I mean, the Pokemon genre is certainly a, a, um, a underexplored one in adventure gaming for people over 10. Yes, but most people just do straight up Pokemon. Their the vast raft of possible mashups mm-hmm. is as yet un- unexplored. Although I guess uh, Big Eye Small Mouth actually did a book of pocket monsters. The oh, It was something like, I, I, I'm going to wreck this, but it was it was something like, um, pocket cockfighting something or other that obviously couldn't be sold in half the stores in America. Right, because uh, when you turn your double entendre into a single entendre, where else <laughs> have you got to go? <laughs> right, yeah. You, you pretty much, you're down to the zero-dimensional entendre, which uh, devours all light. Now, speaking of which, Dragon Con once had the reputation as the lubricious con, where goths uh, went to hook up. Has that been swallowed up by the just general energy of the much bigger multi-track media con that most big cities are developing now. Well, there were there were uh, there was many fewer goths as a percentage. At, I mean, just as there is in nerddom at large, uh, it no longer being the mid '90s. But the most of the people that I saw were not gothed out. They were in various media costumes or superhero costumes or some other kind of a costume. That said, there was an awful lot of young people very enthusiastically getting along. At the, every single one of the hotels, the lobby was sort of a giant uh, ongoing party. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd meet attractive strangers in the elevator because you couldn't help it because the elevator was full of attractive strangers. So I am sure that if you are not a um, uh, mid-40s doughy married game designer, you are at making Dragon Con as lubricious as you possibly can with the uh, constraints, obviously, of gentlemanly behavior that should be enforced on everyone. So to rewind a bit to the 21st century Cthulhu panel, which is the one that sort of catches my ear as being uh, a few degrees off the standard panel fare, what did you uh, take away from that in terms of observations by other panelists that you uh, wanted to roll around in your brain for a little while longer? I I think that a lot of the other panelists had a fairly, and I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but there seemed to be a little more of an embarrassment by Lovecraft and a wish that we could just move Cthulhu beyond Lovecraft and start talking about... Everyone wanted to talk about personal horror and the sort of, uh, you know, not that this is postmodern, this is the actual modern horror uh, that uh, Robert Block sort of pioneered with Psycho, but they wanted to talk about the, the, the big horror happening to a small person as the Cthulhu mythos, which, of course, to me, is obviously part of the mythos. I mean, as far back as the thing at the doorstep, but it's really not, you know, what I think is the strength of the mythos, which is, of course, the cosmic, cosmic scope of it. But there seemed to be sort of a diffidence in approaching Lovecraft and approaching cosmic scope. And I'm not sure why that was. And I would have thought that, you know, someone like either someone like Jonathan Mayberry or even someone like Cherie Priest might have been more immediately open to the cosmicism. But everyone seemed, you know, besides me and uh, Brian, to want to get away from Lovecraft a little bit in the 21st century. And that might just be sort of um, cringe at his... Uh, more robustly pre-modern attitudes that he uh, liked to express. Right. And I guess there's also 
I mean, today's writing culture is much more about character and exploration of character and a story arc, which when you put it in a horror context becomes personal horror that you're reducing it to one person. And mm -hmm. that essentially the horror of Lovecraft says that your personality, your humanity is insignificant, mm -hmm. that it doesn't matter. And therefore it doesn't much matter in Lovecraft's fiction that many of his characters are essentially reiterations of previous types that he he's used. And so if you are exploring the, the human psyche through horror, I suppose there's an idea that that's contradictory to the ultimate cosmic indifference of what he's saying. But I, I think that along with you, that I think it's interesting to uh, marry those two things rather than to run away from them. You certainly want to run away at top speed from his racism. So I certainly see wanting to have a revisionist attitude toward uh, that very, very central aspect of what he's doing. I was recently looking at his essay, uh, Supernatural Horror in Literature, as uh, part of an exercise of a uh, uh, stoneskin press anthology that we're in the planning stages of. And, you know, even there, you're, you keep being swacked right upside the face with his uh, racist and, and ethnic determinism. I can see why you, you know, want to turn that on its head, not even to ignore it, but to confront it. But I don't necessarily see how that also requires you to abandon the other thing that was, the, or rather the thing that was interesting about his thought, because otherwise you are just importing his monsters into a more conventional emotional landscape. And especially since part of the, part of the joy, I guess, of his cosmic horror is that things like racial difference you know, literally can't matter, right? Because we're all mayflies. We're all identical in the eyes of Nirlathotep, whether we're uh, blue-blooded uh, Rhode Island uh, Nuris Phoenix or whether we're, you know, filthy mongrel immigrants from beyond the pale. Either way, uh, we're still the same thing to Nirlathotep or the same, you know, uh, bit of matter to be eroded by Azathoth. Yeah, so Lovecraft was a racist, but Nirlathotep not necessarily. Not, not so. so much, yeah. And so the... And so the contradiction there between his 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 racial and ethnic uh, concerns and his larger cosmic concerns, even within Lovecraft, he starts working it out uh, in his fiction as he gets farther and farther away from sort of the purely human concerns of racism. And by the Haunter in the Dark, famously, of course, the Italians and the Polish are the only people who have even a prayer of stopping, literally, a prayer of stopping near Lothotep. And it's the you know, stupid white guy from Wisconsin who wrecks everything. I think we are also looking at a genre in which people are moving away from having a recognizable style yeah. and an idea of having, you know, style be invisible. And that's something that I've always tried to work against in my own fiction. And there is sort of a thought that uh, Lovecraft's prose is universally horrible, and you certainly want to avoid pastiching it in any way. That's going to be horrible, and his early stuff is full of things that you wouldn't do today. But in a lot of ways, the flight from style in genre has thrown out a lot of useful, exciting devices uh, with the bathwater, and is not necessarily something that I would 
uh, want to follow up on either. That was that was absolutely something that I was going to mention. If you hadn't, is that uh, along with the sort of uh, liberal cringe from Lovecraft's, uh, you know, <laughs> reactionary and then uh, fascist politics, there is also. Um, a degree of modernist cringe from his literary style, which, of course, is mostly his adaptation of Hawthorne via Poe and Dunsany, but is very much a, a 19th century or at least a pre-Hemingway, uh, pre-Heinlein sort of style. And there is a massive prejudice uh, among people who should know better, people who one suspects have read books written before 1940, um, that Lovecraft is a bad writer. And it's it's just it's, it's almost an illiterate thing to say. Well, I think on this uh, vituperation of those who vituperate Lovecraft, I guess we have come to our allotted time to talk about DragonCon. Anything else you want to throw into the mix uh, in painting a picture of DragonCon before we exit the segment? Um, I'd, I'd just like to say that uh, Atlanta, while uh, miserable in August, is still a great uh, fun town to have a party in. Uh, everyone was terrifically nice to me. The fans were very enthusiastic, even the ones who didn't quite know what was going on. They were always open uh, and willing, and I think a lot of that is that sort of infusion of youth that we've had, that we've talked about with regards to Fan Expo. And I, uh, I, I very much enjoyed my time there, even if it may have seemed like I was sort of getting that thousand-yard stare that is the three conventions in three weeks uh, phenomenon, and I'm I'm not sure what can what what could obviate that besides a more sensible travel schedule in the first yeah, place, or or several bumps of, of of crystal meth, which is probably a bad idea for productivity as well. Well, uh, we uh, prefigure our next segment, so let's uh, exit this segment, uh, hit a brief commercial message, and on with the podcast. Joining us as sponsor this episode is writer and musician David Maurice Garrett. Those ominous strains you hear are from Dave's album Al Azif. It's a mixture of classical and electronic music. The album follows the career of Abdul Al Hazrid through Lovecraft and the Necronomicon. His music is influenced by such classical figures as Rachmaninoff, Mahler, and Sibelius, and on the soundtrack side of things, John Williams, Hans Zimmer, and Danny Elfman. You can use the music as ambiance or thematic establishment for your next Trail of Cthulhu session, or just creep yourself out. And check out his book of short stories called The Tome of Horror. It contains 32 weird tales. He draws inspiration from Lovecraft, Poe, James, and Blackwood, the sort of high canon of high weirdness. And from the dark woods and darker folkways of his native Alabama. The book is in both print and ebook through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and your other favorite outlets. So check him out at www.davidmaurisegarrett.com or find his album at davidmaurisegarrett.bandcamp.com. Ladder of keys on the Selectric indicates that you have entered a writer's hut that closed down sometime in the late 80s, but <laughs> in our head, it still echoes as how to write good. And Robin, how do we write good, especially after three weeks of conventioneering? Well, as I was saying earlier, one of the keys to writing is 
maintaining your productivity. So this week I thought we would talk a bit about, I think, the main thing that determines whether you are going to have a career, whether it's your full-time job or as a sideline doing respected work, and that is uh, discipline and maintaining your productivity, that there is no substitute in writing, and this is something that a lot of aspiring writers don't want to hear, and I would suggest separates the aspirational writer from the emerging writer, is that a lot of it is just sitting down in a chair and exercising the discipline to keep on writing. So I thought that we would talk a bit about the role of discipline and routine in our own writing lives and then move out from there to see if we can extrapolate that into general advice for you, the aspiring writer who's listening to this podcast, or just if you are a consumer of writing and want to look a bit behind the curtain to see <laughs> to see to see a doughy guy typing which and then which yes. there is nothing more riveting to look at R- right which is why they're uh, all all interesting movies about writers are lies <laughs> <laughs> or aren't about writing or aren't about writing or about the things that writers did before yeah. they became writers salem's lot in theory is a movie about a writer but it's about a writer fighting a vampire and not writing about a vampire right and if you believe that writers spend much of their time uh, combating vampires again you have been deceived yes. in fact as Ken can attest, vampire fighting is a big drag on one's word count. Yes, it, it slows it slows things down immeasurably, or actually measurably, in fact. So, Ken, how wedded to routine are you? How dependent are you on every writing day being the same as the writing day that came before it and the writing day that came afterwards? Uh, I'm not super wedded to writing routine, although I like to have my weeks sort of have the same shape. So, it's it, it, on any given week, there's going to be one or two days that are good writing days, and those are going to sort of show up in the interstices of whatever else has to go on that week. And then, but I, but if I have a week where I can look at that week and I say, oh, there's, there's not going to be any good writing days. There's going to have to be, you know, a convention trip or a day answering, you know, 8 million emails or a day spent on a conference call or a day doing this or a day doing that. Then that sort of deforms my week. And I, I don't, I, I can't actually pre-plan that, you know, Wednesday will always be writing day because sometimes Wednesday can't always be writing day. And, you know, obviously a writer who has, you know, kids or something is even more at the mercy of the elements. I, you know, we still marvel at the fact that Matt Forbeck gets one book written a year, much less 90 or whatever his actual number is, uh, given that he's got five kids. So oh, I, I just, doesn't he have a sweatshop where he makes all of those five kids write for him? Isn't isn't that how he does it? I, I think so, but then I would have to. I, I I want to see the sweatshop where he trains them to uh, mimic his prose style. Well, you know, there, there are quads. I think there's probably like a genetic component, right? There. But, okay. But yeah. you know, other than you know, breeding new writers to to work for you mm-hmm. in um, some sort of hellish pod creature symbiosis, right? Which we do not necessarily recommend, but it obviously works. It works for Matt. Yeah. I am much more a creature of routine that if I do not start writing by a certain point in my day, the whole day is blown, right? So that mm-hmm. I shoot for a certain uh, word count uh, every day. And when I'm done that word count, I may go a little over and sort of keep track of it in order to, you know, knock that off word count later on in the week when concentration falters a bit. But I strive to write the same number of words on every writing day. And uh, one of the big challenges I have to productivity currently is the fact that I'm working on more and more things and therefore fielding more and more emails. The pace of that is just um, growing and growing. And I know that it's a huge temptation to sit down at the beginning of the day and start answering emails and also a a horrible trap to fall into that if there's uh, maybe a couple of things that I can briefly 
reel off an, a quick answer to that I'll do that at the beginning of the day, but really I need to try and find to steal time uh, at the end of the day or even a little pocket of time at night in order to do the business part of things, which steals a lot of energy from writing time and switching just between one task and another, no matter how mindless the task, has a huge cognitive cost. And so, you know, taking the time to draw up an invoice is time taken away from focus that it would otherwise be devoted to getting in the zone on whatever actual piece of paid work I'm doing that day. So I feel that I'm always uh, playing whack-a-mole with, with emails. And I've, you know, even tell people now in my email signature that, you know, I'm being terse, don't be offended. I'm trying to answer these emails as quickly as possible. And that has an upside and a downside because uh, sometimes in emails, people do want you to spend time and be chatty and be friendly and attend to the human aspect of whatever thing that you're trying to contact them about. But uh, if you've got a bunch of people that you have to do that for on a regular basis, soon you find that your time you have spent to not only write, but to get your head in the writing space has uh, has diminished. And often if I go over that line, I will find that I you know considerably blow my quota that day. The um, thing that I find is that I answer emails and do all of my sort of not writing business of writing during the day. I, I wake up around uh, noon or one and I work on things that are not actually putting words on paper. That can be research, that can be emails, that can be uh, doing podcast recordings, whatever it is during the day, because during the day is the time that I'm going to wind up having to answer the phone or run errands or, you know, get dinner ready or whatever else. And so the chance of actually sitting down and getting two or 3,000 words knocked out in the morning when the rest of the universe is awake and bothering me is pretty much slim and none. But after I start, you know, sort of my second shift around one in the morning, that is the time that if I can, you know, drop into it, if I have a, a ready manuscript and, and uh, the ideas are there, that's when I can really, you know, uh, get into the zone fast and I don't ever have to stop and switch out to another project. And when I do have to switch projects, like you mentioned, it can be a little bit of a, of a drag, especially if you're going, say, from editing to writing or from writing something with one kind of tone uh, to writing something with another kind of tone. There's a real uh, gear shift that, you know, it, it just seems like um, sitting there and rubbing my chin and making noises to myself or, or trying to distract myself with, with a blog or something. But it's but it, it really is. It's a matter of just getting yourself back into the part where, you know, your subconscious brain is doing all the work and all you have to do is type it. Yeah, I tried um, just sort of for lifestyle reasons and being in sync with my wife to work office hours as much as I possibly can, which means that I don't have that buffer between administration time and writing time. And I'm always battling with different ways of trying to uh, juggle that and really more, much more so than procrastination or writer's block. That is the big challenge that I face in, and and the other thing that I that I think a lot of writers face is the issue of getting enough sleep. Is just uh, sleep deprivation. If you you know were up uh, late the night before, and when you should have been sleeping according to your regular sleep cycle, you were instead uh, worrying about something stupid that you would only worry about at one a.m. Or instead, getting a bunch of stupid ideas that you would rather uh, have be brilliant ideas the next day. Mm -hmm. It can be a struggle to achieve the degree of uh, consciousness and acuity that you need in order to get in the writing zone. And that's another sort of uh, constant 
writing battle for which uh, I would mostly say that there isn't necessarily a solution, just like if you're a carpenter, there isn't a solution to occasionally whacking your <laughs> hand with a hammer. Right. That's an occupational hazard. But I have started trying something, and I'm close enough into it that I'm unprepared to recommend it wholeheartedly, but it really actually has changed the hours in which my attention is at my command, and that is something called the Pomodoro Technique. Have you heard of this? This is the one where you work, like, uh, there's a little timer or something? There's a little timer where you work 25 minutes on whatever it is that you're doing, and then the timer goes off, and you spend five minutes theoretically not doing anything. And, of course, that is probably the more challenging part (laughs) than the 25 minutes spent working is the five minutes spent not working. Uh, But I downloaded a very simple app uh, that does that, timer tracking and there's all sorts of more levels of detail where you're logging things and there's longer breaks and shorter breaks but i haven't been bothering with that i've just been doing the 25 minute break and although and before i would have told you that you know the whole point of trying to rev yourself up is to get into a zone where you're in a continuous state of creativity for your uh, two or three or four hours or whatever it is where you're writing your peak amount of first draft material and that if any break from that would be disastrous. But I've found actually so far anyway, that the contrary is true and that it has really helped me to uh, sharpen my focus and work more efficiently. And it's as if the brain needs to rest occasionally, who would have thunk it? I suspect that a lot of this is how individual people's individual brain chemistry and individual uh, writing habits work. Because I mean, if you look at the history of writers, there's, as many different productivity ideas and as many different sort of ways that they wrote uh, as there are writers. I mean, I'm not saying everyone needs to strip naked and write in a cork-lined room the way that... Um, not, not that you want to reveal too much of your method. That Well, that's, uh, I think, was it Balzac? It was one of the French writers. Maybe it was Hugo. I'm going to say it was Victor Hugo. But it was, it was one of the French writers used to do that, and that was how he would do it, because he wanted no sensory distraction whatsoever. I, of course, um, uh, you know, put on pants, or not... Well, never mind. Anyway, <laughs> I don't line the room with cork. That's the point I'm trying to make. Right. Um, and so you, you didn't need to wear the Pikachu hat. Exactly. I don't need to thing. wear the Pikachu hat. I choose to wear the Pikachu hat. Get it right. <laughs> um, I think that's absolutely right. That everybody has a different ways of tricking themselves into doing this impossible, stupid, annoying thing that yeah. is called writing. I mean, what I what I usually try to do at the sort of at the end of the email phase, like if you know, I know that Sheila is coming home from work, say between five and five thirty. So around 4.30 or so, I will start a chapter or I will start an outline or I will start something that I can't get physically done before she gets home. So that when she gets home, it interrupts me and I have it just sitting there hanging fire and my brain is, you know, while I'm, you know, cooking dinner or talking to my wife or watching TV or whatever it is, some part of my brain is finishing what I started or getting me psyched up to finish what I started. So that when I come back upstairs after uh, she's gone to bed and I start writing again, I'm, I don't have that part where you just have the blank page and the cursor blinking at you and a whole world of more interesting things to do one internet away. And so if what the problem that my brain is trying to solve is not, um, you know, I wonder if there's exciting news about Batman as opposed to, I wonder how I'm going to write the next batch of paragraphs, or I wonder which aliens I should put in this book, or I wonder how many different guns I can list before everyone gets tired of it, or or some work-related uh, wonder that will tend to sort of jumpstart me. But that doesn't work, you know, universally. It just works, I think, 
um, when I have a project that's sufficiently hooky and grabby that I want to be working on it anyway, which sort of makes it a, a relatively useless uh, method for something that I just have to grind out. Right, and and, and sadly, for, for probably very few writers, there's nothing, no method that works all the time yeah. uh, because you'll be distracted by other things. We had discussed sleep cycle earlier, mm-hmm. um, and I think writer's block is maybe something we should talk about in another segment because it's actually, I think, a whole other issue related to your broader emotional state. Um, and the me- the technique that you mentioned of... Uh, stopping at an exciting point where you know where to pick off again, that's a point of huge contention between writers. I know I'm with you on that, that I prefer to be able to pick up in the middle of something rather than to have to rev up the beginning of a new chapter or a new section from scratch. But there are just as many writers who will recoil in horror from that idea that they always have to sort of work their way into things. And the trick there is to then go back and really look hard at the writing that you did during your revving up phase, because that's often fat and can sort of be cut out. It's kind of often word spinning on the page that that got you where you need to be, that you can uh, slice down quite a bit. So I guess the, the ultimate takeaway from this is just that uh, as an emerging writer trying to figure out what your routine is and what works for you, is that something different works for everybody, but whatever works for you has probably already been pioneered by somebody else, whether it's the Parmadoro technique or the uh, cork-lined room, and that if you just listen to a lot of people who use different ways to trick themselves into writing and find the tricks that work on your brain until they stop working and then find another batch. Yeah, I think that, you know, whatever... The the, the only sort of saving grace in all of this uh, morass of different techniques and different advice and different brain chemistries is that you do, at the end of the day, have a metric to know whether or not it's working. And the real job of the writer is to be willing to face that metric squarely and to say, how many professional quality words came out at the end of that process? And if the answer is none or ten, then you may want to take a second look at your process or or reestablish something if the answer is enough to get me through to the next part of the process or whatever I feel my word count is. And, you know, uh, someone like uh, Matt uh, has told me that his word, his good word count on a day is 5,000, which is, seems very high to me, but other writers, you know, I've talked to uh, have said, you know, maybe a thousand words. I think that's what Stephen King says that his, his day's work is a thousand words. And then he, um, uh, uh, can knock off or he can keep writing if he wants to. And it's not exactly like the shelf is not groaning with Stephen King novels. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, a thousand uh, surprises me for, for him. He seems to have sort of ready access to his uh, muse and be continually producing stuff. But, you know, 5,000 sure sounds high to me too. Yeah. Um, although I don't like to reveal my own number. I feel it's like going out in public without my trousers on. Yes. <laughs> and as, as uh, we've established previously, um, without a cork-lined room, that can be unsafe. Exactly. Uh, where we unite on this is uh, wear trousers in public, emerging writers. Wear trousers in, in public. So, welcome to another episode of Ken and Robin Recycle Audio. This time we're going to dive deep, or rather uh, dive incisively into excerpts from our Gen Con panel on gumshoe and investigative role-playing, in which Simon Rogers uh, joins Ken and I, and uh, we're just providing excerpts of the 
panel because uh, the rest of the panel was basically devoted to uh, kind of a version of the booth pitch that people would get if they didn't know anything about gumshoes. So we are assuming you do not want to hear us uh, once again tell you the basics of gumshoes. So we're just going to pick the things that either go a little deeper or maybe have a broader inspiration beyond uh, gumshoe itself. So in this first collection of panel excerpts. We talk about stealing from gumshoe, pillars of sanity, the different treatments of mental stability in various gumshoe iterations, and more. Here Robin answers the question, what's the easiest thing to steal from gumshoe? The, the easiest thing to steal from gumshoe is the main thing about gumshoe, which is the realization that failing to get information is never interesting. There's all sorts of things that are interesting if you fail to do them, uh, like tripping a trap or running away from a monster, where both of those results could lead somewhere in the storyline. But failing to get information is just a null result. So what you can do in any game is do what we do in Gumshoe, where like any other traditional system, you decide what ability you're using to attempt to gather the information, and you describe yourself gathering the information. In a traditional game, you roll and have a chance of failing. In Gumshoe, you just don't do that part. You just get the information. And so what that allows you to do then, if you and you can steal that for anything with any sort of informational skill, or even other skills that are used informationally from time to time, right? So in a, uh, a D20 fantasy game, if you have, you know, uh, awareness of nature, for example, sometimes you're going to use awareness of nature to avoid traps or whatever, and you still want to have a role for that. But when you're using awareness of nature to figure out who damaged this uh, this ancient briar wood that is sacred to the elves and you need to move along you can just give them that information and not require the role and that has certain effects in the way that you design adventures because now you know they're going to find out uh, you know of course the, the druid is going to be able to immediately identify the crucial thing about the damage done to the briar and that allows you to structure your adventure knowing that they're going to move on to the next thing and also what happens in Gumshoe is we're able to make the investigations richer and more nuanced because it now means we can give you all sorts of information. And now the question is not, do you find the one clue that allows you to move on, which is basically just like a locked door, essentially, structurally, but it gives you all sorts of information. And then your task as players is to figure out from all these bits of information which clues matter and which ones resolve into the, the narrative of what happened that you're trying to investigate. Now Ken explains how Trail of Cthulhu's Pillars of Sanity function as hit locations for your mental health. Okay, the, in, the, in Trail of Cthulhu, uh, modeled as it is on Lovecraftian fiction, the notion is that the things that you believe most strongly are the things that are not true about the world. The world is cold, pitiless, implacable, hateful. No one actually believes that. You believe something else. You believe that uh, human science is rational and explains everything. You believe that your country is always doing right. You believe that your family um, uh, is a source of strength. You have faith, in, uh... faith, in, faith in, in God or whatever. Those are your beliefs. And the fiction of the game exists, the fiction of Lovecraft exists, to tear away at the foundations of your belief. What the pillars of uh, sanity do in a mechanical sense is twofold. First, they allow much faster losses of sanity for much bigger shocks to go to your core, right? So if, you're, if your belief is, you know, I believe that human science can explain everything, and you're confronted with something that human science has already ruled out and made inexplicable, 
your belief, your, your sanity will crumble much faster, right? Similarly, if you say, I believe in a loving God, and you're confronted with proof that if God exists, he hates you, that belief will crumble faster. And so that points to what the other purpose of it is, is it's a targeting device for the keeper to aim story death at your character with. And then in the middle, it's a way for you to sort of individualize your character and figure out how to role play him, what, what he would talk about with his other characters, what, he would, what he's looking for when he's going down into the dungeon or, or into the you know, swamp or whatever. Why is he doing that on a philosophical level as opposed to his drives, which are more of an emotional level? But the pillars exist basically to add drama to the action of just ticking off sanity points. Think of it as a wound location chart. <laughs> for sanity loss. Right, so when you see the ghoul boil out of the crypt with your uh, mother's arm and its teeth, then you can, you know, instead of just describing, well, I go like this, blah, you can say, well, my faith in the uh, fundamental justice of the universe uh, has just been knocked back and I'm real. So it's, as Ken suggested, it's just a way of describing what happens when you lose your sanity. Yeah, describing mechanically and describing internally and describing verbally to the other players. This leads to a discussion of stability in the various gumshoe games. N none of the other gumshoe games so far are as centered on sort of existential core horrors. And so there's no real, for example, in Knights Black Agents, you're fighting vampires, things are pretty scary, but there's no sanity stat because even if the vampires are Lovecraftian monsters, the game is not about, you know, the existential horror beneath all universe. The game is about looking badass and shooting vampires in the face. Um, you have stability, which is, is um, I suppose it's, it's less philosophical. It's just how together you are, really. Um, and Esoterrorist has that. And you do have sources of stability, things that make you um, grounded. So that might be a family or an object or something like that. Yeah. Um, but you don't specifically attack those. They're things that you can go to to get points back, really. Right. And, and in some of the other games, stability is even less like uh, sanity in Call of Cthulhu. In Mutant City Blues, it's basically your mental resistance against the mutant attacks. But it's the question of do you go insane is not part of a police procedural, usually. Uh, instead, it's you know, do you get kicked off the force do you become burned out as a police officer? That's an issue that you always see in, in police shows. So that's handled differently. You don't really need stability to work that way. And in Ash and Stars, there's just no stability at all because in a space opera game, again, genre-wise, we don't usually think of losing your sanity as a big theme of space opera. So we leave it out. And that's one of the uh, sort of core design philosophies that we have about Gumshoe, which is that we're not trying to create a single gumshoe way of doing things and then apply those to different genres, we ask ourselves, what is the genre? What are the ingredients we need in order to make it feel like a space opera or a superhero cop show or whatever it is and leave everything else out? And even to the point where sometimes, uh, like grenades, work differently in Mutant City Blues than they do in Esoterrorist because uh, sometimes in some genres grenades are depicted fairly realistically um, and other genres they're not depicted realistically at all so we go with the thing that feels right for the setting rather than just saying well these are how grenades work in any gumshoe game now some thoughts on planning heists and operations particularly in Knights Black Agents if everyone at the table likes it there is nothing wrong with the old-school Shadowrun model 
of spending an entire gaming session planning the run such that when you start the run the next gaming session and, and everything goes wrong on the first die roll, you have a whole different scenario. So because you sort of had one scenario you pretended you were running for four hours and then the actual scenario. But there are individual players or keepers or GMs who are more impatient with that model. And so because uh, Knights Black Agents is so thoroughly based in that thriller, caper, you know, heist, plan, ambush, hit space, that in theory, players who love to plan everything to death could really hijack a Knights Black Agents campaign. And so all of the design work that I've done in that area has been to make sure to empower improvisational play so that people don't feel like we can't be playing Knights Black Agents because Carl is going to make us plan every single ambush. So what there are uh, maneuvers in the, in the core book, there's things in, in the notes in the box went about how to do the heist in a double tap. There are even more sorts of ad hoc, I already planned that, uh, you've fallen right into my trap type maneuvers that will allow the illusion of planning to have taken place. Just like in Ocean's Eleven, we don't see Danny Ocean plan the whole heist twice. We see him lay out the fake plan once, and then in flashback is how you see what actually happened. That flashback moment is what I was aiming for everything I write for Knights Black Agents, because even with the preparedness ability, there's plenty of opportunity in a caper or heist or ambush game for there to be real player disconnect. And I'm, I'm just trying to empower the other half of the table. Um, I've, I ran maybe, well, what I thought of as a season of Knights Black Agents, which was 17 sessions. And they, everyone loves sitting down and doing a bit of planning. So they sit down and they're either all agreeing on stuff or they're not agreeing on stuff. After 20 minutes at the most, that's it. That's the end of your planning. You're going to go in and they know to, to stop then. Um, and then this is one of the whole points of special benefits, that the, your point spends. You can do a point spend to do a flashback. Um, if it, the more ridiculous it is or the more unlikely it is, the more points you make them spend. So I, uh, unpreparedness is just, this is, this is what it was made for. Um, 20 minutes of planning and preparedness will take up the slack. Uh, plus, you know, the additional things you can do with investigative points. Right. In the way. For, for, for those of you who have not seen Gumshoe yet, there's a, a, one of the general skills is called preparedness. And that, again, eliminates the whole question of list every single item you have with you at all times. And if you need an item that you don't have and haven't bothered to list in that exciting game session where you listed all of your physical property, uh, then you're screwed. Uh, and that's not all that much fun. Some people like compiling their equipment lists, but that's maybe one guy per uh, And that group. guy can still do it. He, he just do doesn't it, yeah. have to slow up the whole table. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so so this shorthands this, and you're in a situation where you need a golf club, and you go, well, uh, I roll my preparedness, and you have to have a reasonable explanation of why you would have a golf club in, in the back of your SUV, but that's not hard to do in a modern game. It's like, well, I was headed out for game of golf or I needed to threaten the coyotes or whatever it is you're well, the guy we stole this SUV from was sack of golf club exactly <laughs> and so then you just roll to decide whether you have it or not so that, again it still can be interesting if you're in a situation where you need something and you don't have it maybe you need to go if you really need a golf club maybe now you have to go and break into the sporting goods store to get a golf club uh, although I'm sure for most situations it required a golf club a number of blunt instruments <laughs> will do fortunately I had this sand wedge so we could break the window of the sport oh man. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and and so and so that's how preparedness works, and that's what uh, Simon is referring to. 
which leads to the question of whether the GM should actively thwart any best laid plans. I have found that I allow things to go how they go and what usually happens with Knights Black Agents because they have no information about vampires at all that the first thing that happens is that everything goes horribly wrong but if they succeed I let them succeed if I haven't got any reason to make them fail then I let them succeed they get the reward but most of the time if they make a single error something terrible is going to happen but I always reward them if they do perfect tradecraft because that's the only thing they've really got going on the enemy who are hugely physically uh, powerful and powerful in other ways so the thing is the players have over them is, is their tradecraft so I do not try and make things go wrong for them if they're going right I have what the enemy can do what we call in um, the antagonist reactions and if that happens to make them go wrong that's fine and usually a bad role will screw them over anyway. uh, another trick that you can use to uh, have things go well for the players but in a way that still introduces tension is false suspense right so if you've ever seen any sort of heist or suspense sequence there's always a moment where you know you need to uh, get the keys and, and get going in the car and then the character drops the keys as the character as the bad guys are coming toward them so you can even sort of fake the players out and even though the role went well enough you can still make it seem suspenseful by going because they don't necessarily know the difficulties so they've they know what they have rolled and they know what they've added to the role but they don't know whether it succeeded or not until you describe it you say well you uh, you get in the car and you're about to go and, oh no you've dropped the keys and you know that they've succeeded but you can give them that little thing oh but you get them in time and now the, the, the one of the ghouls throws something at the back of the car and the car uh, skids out of the way but you're okay you're out of the parking garage so you've described the success in a way that still maintains tension and still kind of feels like for a moment like things were going to go horribly wrong and then they didn't and then of course other responses particularly if they spend a lot of points you can describe something that's just flat out awesomely amazing that they pulled off uh, as you would in any other system where the, somebody rolls yeah. really well like like most role-playing games the one of the ways that you keep any general contest interesting is to you know play with the result and you know, not play against the result but play with the result like Robin if they succeeded you know, pretty well. You you do the drop the keys. The ghoul bounces something off. You may have scraped the another car or the concrete post on the way out of the garage, but you did it all right. The same thing with a with a gunshot wound or a, or a, or a fisticuffs. It's like just say he hits you for four points is boring, whether it's in D and D or Knights Black Agents or anything else. What you want to do is say you know you um, uh, feel the things uh, knife sharp claws slam in right under your bulletproof vest and they're tearing at your uh, bottom of your rib cage. Something is wet and loose down there, but fortunately you roll out of the way and the thing's, you know, paw pulls loose, trailing hopefully uh, just your blood and not your pancreas for health. And now instead, of, if you just said take four points, the guy looks down and says, oh, I have eight health, I'm all right. Now he's like, oh, I'm half dead. Oh, my That's pancreas. That's not good. My pancreas is out there on the floor somewhere. This could be ugly. And you've built tension, and similarly, you want to then encourage the player instead of to say, I roll shooting, I spend four points, I rolled a five, that's a nine, that means I hit. What you want to say is, you know, slide down the bar, you know, firing the, uh, the, the Glock gangster style, the bullets punch through his throat, spinning around, smash him into the mirror. You always want to bring narrative into the die roll, regardless of the system. And with something like Gumshoe, where the mechanics are fairly simple, what that means is, 
your creativity is less trammeled. And so you can tell a better story than in a game where there really is a difference between a four and a five, or there really is a difference between a four and a six. And in, in Gumshoe, you've got just enough narrative information provided by the dice, but hopefully you are immersing the players in the setting and they're immersed in the setting, and you can use that to determine the difference between, oh, I dropped my keys, oh no, to um, uh, you uh, back out, slam into the car chasing you, the, the guys drop to the ground, you hear a tire deflate, you peel out burning rubber, and some, somehow, you know, the, the clashes I fought the law is suddenly playing. Right, you know. and the, the contests and the fights are pretty quick in Gumshoe, designed that way on purpose because we want to focus uh, most of the time in a session on the investigative part because that's the, the whole uh, point of the game. And so that means that you don't get to the point you often do in a D&D fight or any system where there's a long, crunchy combat where you know it's cool enough to come up with those descriptions for the first three rounds, but after that you're sort of reduced to... Yeah, he uh, hits you. And you hit him. Yeah. You know? And so this way, because it's short, you can use your descriptive powers before uh, your pool points in describing things run out. Stay tuned for more excerpts next week. Pinnacle painted on the doorway and the portrait of Madame Blavatsky looking gloweringly down at us from the wall suggests that we've once again entered the plush confines of the Consulting Occultist. This week, the Consulting Occultist, whose brain may be slightly mushy after Dragon Con, we've given him a topic that he can do while standing on his head, although I'm surprised to find that he's literally standing on his head as he tells us about the Rosicrucians, or as some people call them, the boring old Rosicrucians. Uh, Scott Herring, for example, asked us to discuss this particular movement as something that you hear referred to a lot in occult palaver, but you may not necessarily be grounded in. So if you've only seen the Rosicrucians in back issues of Analog Magazine uh, advertising their obscure philosophy, uh, Ken, who uh, were and are the Rosicrucians? Okay, the Rosicrucians are the people who identify with a series of pamphlets that was published in Germany in uh, the early 17th century. They were published in, uh, I think the first ones were in 1614, and then there was a number, and whichever pamphlets you accept is sort of, you know, uh, a matter of, of, of squabbling, as with so many uh, mystical and religious traditions, but the sort of core pamphlet is something called The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreuz, which was written probably in 1611 or 1612, published around 1614, and was claimed by a guy named um, Johann Valentin Andreae, he claimed that he is the guy who anonymously published uh, this pamphlet. And this tells the story of a sort of superman and supermage named Christian Rosenkreutz. And he has sort of uh, fairly boring adventures in which he goes around to various places of wisdom and he learns various things and he sees uh, magical lights that can only be uh, caused by magic. And he has a marriage, which is an alchemical parallel uh, uh, in that he is sort of the Red King and he's marrying the White Queen. And so there's a lot of symbology sort of wrapped up into it. And the whole thing is basically a enormous 
collection of images that had meaning in various occult circles in Europe in the late uh, 16th and early 17th century. So Andrea said that he did it basically as a joke, um, as a sort of a, you know, let's see how many references I can gather together, sort of like an occult Wold Newton or an occult uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, but what happened was because the intellectual air of Europe was so super saturated with all these images, the existence of a single narrative tying them all together became its own fandom. And so lots and lots of other uh, occultists and academics and uh, political idealists published their own uh, Rosy Cross uh, pamphlets. The Fama Fraternitatis is another big one. So this is basically the early German Renaissance occult version of Fifty Shades of Grey, which started out as fan fiction and became a thing? It's not unlike Fifty Shades in that uh, plenty of people were reading it, and many more people were reading it than wanted to admit it on a bus. So I think that the the, the sort of the high point of it came in 1622 when Rosicrucian posters were plastered all over Paris, and people were saying that uh, we, the secret uh, masters of the Rosicrucians, or rather the deputies of the Higher College of the Rosy Cross, are living invisibly in this city, and we're recruiting. We're, we're looking for people to join us. And among the people who uh, allegedly tried to join them were uh, young René Descartes and another, a number of other people who you could then point to uh, in the later intellectual history of Europe. But what it probably was, was a attempt at sort of the uh, theatrical revolution that the um, uh, that Paris is not is not a foreigner to. The Situationists in 1968 are probably the closest example in our time. But the goal was probably to sort of, by alchemical or magical or symbolic means, elevate political discourse. Uh, by 1622, obviously, the Thirty Years' War has begun. People are beginning to suspect that France is going to be dragged into it, that all of Europe is going to be dragged into it, and that things are just going to get much, much worse. So it begins as this idealistic attempt to unify um, uh, magic and philosophy and alchemy and uh, generally political reform in the, in the sort of uh, vague Lutheran tradition, and rapidly becomes a weird um, sort of occult movement of people who, either as a joke or seriously, are attempting to bring the movement that they believe in into being by claiming that it already exists. And so this is why this movement is so diffuse and hard, hard to get a handle on, is that it began as a series of images to which other people uh, projected things, some of them sincerely, others theatrically, if not jokingly. So can you penetrate beyond that to there being a coherent philosophy that is Rosicrucianism, or is it essentially an outer package in which various movements of various times infused whatever the ferment of their period was? Well, the, um, uh, the uh, Fama Fraternitatis and the Confessio Fraternitatis that are the sort of um, uh, self-proclaimed uh, uh, constitutions of the order are generically Protestant and generically Lutheran. They oppose Catholicism not on theological grounds, but because it is a dogma and doesn't believe in sort of empirically verifying things. So it's been looked at as sort of proto-scientistic as well. Um, but also that is a theological argument because the uh, one of the things that the Lutherans would say is, you know, show me where it says anything about the Pope in the Bible. And obviously you can't do that. And so the argument against dogma is a fundamentally Protestant argument. Uh, Dame Francis Yates says that this uh, Rosicrucian Enlightenment 
because so many early uh, uh, scholars and thinkers like Robert Flood, who was one of the sort of uh, forefathers of Newtonian physics, uh, were Rosicrucian connected or wrote Rosicrucian themed pamphlets that these um, uh, that these scholars mostly, uh, many of which uh, gathered around the court of Rudolf II. Uh, John Dee is you know part of this because John Dee is part of everything. Um, that all of these guys are creating a, a climate of knowledge that will create you know the later Enlightenment and that that is sort of their agenda. I think that saying that there is any specific agenda to a group that literally is a bunch of self-organized uh, fandoms is perhaps over-egging the pudding. I think you can say that they are all generally Protestant in, in intellectual disposition, although not necessarily Protestant in religious disposition. There were some Catholic Rosicrucians, for example. Right. So, so if you ask the question... Is there such a thing? Uh, is Lutheran mysticism a contradiction in terms? The answer is yes, and it's the Rosicrucians. Yeah, I think that that's that's a uh, fair point. Although there's um, there's a a quality of uh, German Pietism that Lutheranism uh, latched itself onto and adopted in much the same way that uh, the Catholic uh, tradition would adapt things like Saint Teresa of Avila and her uh, Pietism, which, while doctrinally unsound, was so obviously uh, religiously ecstatic that it had to be sort of annexed by the faith. Right. But here, uh, because often you will find contradictions between popular religion, what the worshipers on the ground want to do and, and how they want to interact with their idea of sanctity and the official religion of the guys who are running the joint, there's often a, a difference between that. But uh, is this, is there a popular Rosicrucianism or is this a pursuit of uh, intellectuals who are newly emerging as a class during the late medieval and early Renaissance period. I, I think that this almost, almost entirely has to be seen as an intellectual fad or intellectual fandom or intellectual obsession. Uh, there may or may not have been individual crowds, especially in university towns, that were fired up by the pamphlets and by sort of a general message of reform, because obviously there were plenty of crowds to be fired up by general messages of reform. Uh, in that century and in every other going down to the modern times. But the notion that there was ever a popular Rosicrucianism is, I think, you know, uh, several steps beyond the evidence. So in the 70s, if I had bothered to write to the address in the little ad in the back of Analog magazine to learn more about Rosicrucianism, uh, what would I have received and what sort of modern movement would I uh, possibly have been inducted into? You almost certainly would have been writing away to the ancient mystical order of the Rosy Cross, the Amwork, which was founded in uh, 1915 by um, a bunch of guys who, you know, sort of missed the fun of the Rosicrucian era. Uh, there was, uh, it's sort of the, I don't want to say the, the tail end, but let's say the second lobe of the, of the great uh, pre-war occult boom that begins with um, the uh, spiritualists and blows up with Blavatsky. So this is sort of a response to Blavatsky looking for a more purely Western tradition that will still let you believe all the nonsense that theosophy does. And I think you probably would have learned about whatever kind of crazy things the current heads of Amwork might have been into, and that could have been um, sort of uh, Pythagorean philosophy, it could have been magical symbolism, it could have just been, you know, breathing techniques. They, much like their, their founders, it's sort of um, a, a, a bunch of different things as opposed to a single unifying thesis 
so it's it's not much of a cult. It's more of a of a study group habit. I think they took Francis Bacon as sort of their model, and of course he was famously a polymath interested in all manner of uh, wonderful stuff. Right, and again that template of a group that is interested in a bunch of stuff without necessarily tying it all together. It, we see again with the rise of the New Age movement where people are mixing and matching different traditions and people will have a broad set of interests rather than necessarily always just burrowing into whatever their particular well-defined form of personal mysticism is. Yeah. The, um, I, you know, again, like most uh, movements, they're sort of, you know, the, the sort of the, the super fan, the, the, the guy whose pamphlets are, are the best pamphlets in America. That's a guy named uh, H. Spencer Lewis who's sort of, you know, an Atlantis and Lemuria type guy. Um, he's, uh, he also was a uh, planetarium pioneer among his other, uh, habits. Uh, apparently, you know, perfectly nice fellow. Um, and he believed it in the sort of, surely if we all believed something magic, we could make the world less sucky type attitude that the original Rosicrucians had. So in a way, you know, it's the same tradition, but it's not the same tradition in the sense that there were secret masters going around and, um, illuminating him with magic light bulbs, which is one of the things that he, um, uh, tried to, uh, promulgate based again on the magic light that's described in the, uh, uh, sacred marriage of Christian Rosenkreutz. So for fictional or gaming purposes, is there something more exciting that you can do with this movement either than make them the sort of outer wrapper of a, a sort of a benign appearing occult movement beneath which you find uh, something genuinely weird and interesting? I think it might be fun to sort of play it straight as opposed to making them, like you say, the benign outer wrapper or the deluded fools who have been misled by the you know, reptoids or the serpent god or whatever. I think it might be fun to just play it straight. You just look at, you know, what they believe they could do with their, you know, magical lamps and their cosmic ray detecting Geiger counters and all of their other, um, uh, you know, vibratory harps and, and, and whatnot. And you say, nope, this is serious, real stuff. It does work. You just have to believe in it. And if you can believe in it, if you can have a certain level of, of faith that things are better than they look, you know, and that, you know, you could say in a way that that's, you know, sort of uh, Superman's superpowers, that he always believes that there's a way out that doesn't involve, you know, killing everyone and starting over. But that the Rosicrucian, you know, sense of belief in their powers lets them do these uh, magic magics and these miracles. And you can either play a more Rosicrucian in spirit game in which your job is to go around, sort of like uh, Doe, the Pilgrims of the Flying Temple, your job is to go around and help people uh, who have problems, or you can be fighting off, you know, evil, uh, you know, Satanists and reptoids and, st and stuff, but using it in, in a very sort of straight-faced, uh, pre-war, pre-cynicism, pre-postmodern way. Um, and I think that that would actually be a more interesting thing to do with it than just the same sort of thing that, that pops to mind, which is that they're people who were, you know, exposed to the true Atlantean wisdom and were deranged by it. And if you want a really great fictional look at a quasi-Rosicrucian movement, one of my favorite novels by Charles Portis is called Masters of Atlantis, and that follows a group in uh, the uh, interwar period who are sort of setting up their fraternal order of Atlantean knowledge. Uh, Charles Portis is also well known as the author of True Grit and is someone that you should be reading if you really love a uh, dry, beautiful, humorous, uh, stylized literary style. And that's a book that I would highly recommend to anyone, although it is not, strictly speaking, a genre book. There's not, uh, you know, magic flying or anything like that. 
Yeah, um, the Rosicrucians show up every now and again. Obviously, um, Bulwer Lytton sort of kicked them off again when he wrote when he invented the occult romance with Zanoni. Um, Zanoni is uh, it's more Rosicrucian supernatural horror than what I was talking about, but it is the same sort of approach to you know magic that if you believe it strong enough, it it works. Herman Hesse apparently wrote uh, Rosicrucian novels because he was a mystical German and felt left out. Um, and of course, Foucault's Pendulum for me is always the great novel of people who believe things just to make them true. Um, so if you're doing a, uh, either if you're doing a historical, um, Rosicrucian game in which you're fighting off, um, uh, proto Nazis and rune magicians with your good German mysticism, which would be a great deal of fun set in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, down to maybe 1915 when the uh, World War One breaks out and the Rosicrucian program is broken yet again. Or you can set it all the way back in the 17th century when they're starting the Rosicrucian movement, and maybe it is possible to have superhuman magi who can resolve the problems of Europe. Um, and you, you can use uh, Foucault's Pendulum, obviously, as a resource for those, as well as stuff like um, uh, either Histories of the Thirty Years' War or uh, things like the historical Illuminatus Chronicles by... Uh, Robert Anton Wilson. Well, now that we've uh, loaded up your bookshelf with resources, we can declare our segment on the Rosicrucians well accomplished. Before we close out this podcast, I would just like to acknowledge the passing of Braz King. Braz was a stalwart of the Shadow Fist slash Feng Shui community who, in fact, helped found a uh, Inner Kingdom Games, which took the Shadow Fist card game over from Zed Man Games. And unfortunately, we didn't get to collaborate that much on his uh, plans for Shadow Fist, which uh, continue on uh, even though he has gone. Uh, Braz uh, had to step away from that because he had health problems and uh, unfortunately discovered that uh, his health problems were even worse than his doctors thought. Uh, he was on uh, Facebook describing his uh, struggles with cancer and uh, really had uh, an inspiring way of discussing a turn of events that was getting uh, worse and worse for him. And he departed with uh, dignity and style and uh, just increased my admiration for him. And uh, unfortunately, the uh, Shadow Fist Feng Shui community, as well as a local uh, poetry community. He was also a, a musician. There are a lot of people who are going to miss Braz and his impact on the creative world, and I'm certainly one of those people, so I wanted to uh, mention him and remember him to our podcast listeners. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Genesis of Legend, David Maurice Garrett, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help keep this Gollumafri going by clicking the donate button at kennyrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Joining such illustrious listeners as Frederick Keisha, Edward Hirsch, Ronald W. Vargas II, and Eamon Honan. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Downcast, or your podcast app of choice. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>